Good afternoon. It's been a long time. So, last time was 13 weeks ago that I stood in, in this place at this time. 13 weeks is exactly three months, right? One quarter of a year. So let's continue. Um, Ezra. Um, Pastor Chiming took the first sermon where he showed this slide. A very busy slide, but it talks about the history of Israel. That there were three exiles uh, from Israel to Babylon. And then there were three returns. The first one under Zerubbabel, where the, the chief act was to, to rebuild, to rebuild the house of worship, to rebuild the temple. And then we had a hiatus where we talked about Haggai, the prophet, where the people have stopped building some 18 years, and they decided to build their own house instead. And then now we're talking about the second return in Ezra chapter 7 to 10. And this time it's not so much to rebuild the temple, the house of worship, but to rebuild the worshippers, to restore the worshippers. And then there is a third return that we're going to tackle in April in the book of Nehemiah, talking about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So today we have, we're going to consider Ezra 7 and 8, okay? So let's read together. <laughs> no, I, I actually want to highlight the yellow part. Even the yellow is difficult to see. The yellow part, six times in these two chapters, this phrase come out, the hand of God. The hand of God, six times. And hence the title of today's sermon, the hand of God. Of God. What does Ezra chapter 7 and 8 say about the hand of God? So let me go through this very quickly. In Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, it says, The king, Artaxerxes, granted Ezra all that Ezra asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on Ezra. So the king granted whatever Ezra requested. Then <coughs> Chapter 7, verse 9 and 8, 31. Uh, for on the first day, this was talking about Ezra's journey, that four-month journey that he took from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem. And chapter 7, verse 9, for on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of the Lord was on Ezra. And then chapter 8, verse 31. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And you can imagine that four-month journey wasn't an easy journey because there were bandits and highway robbers along the way. But they made it for the hand of our God was on us. And then, very interesting Preserved through history was a letter that King Artaxerxes wrote to all his governing people along the route where Ezra went back. And in this, King, who wrote, calls himself what? King of Kings. He had the temerity to call himself King of Kings. And then he decreed that Ezra can take anyone you like with you to Jerusalem. Ezra can take the silver and the gold that I, the king, have given to you. Ezra can even take up a free will offering from your people to bring back to Jerusalem. And Ezra, you have the freedom to spend the money as you see fit. Uh, 
in accordance to the will of your God. And Ezra, if you need anything else, take it. Take it from the royal treasury. And Ezra, you have tax-free status. Kind of like our donations to CSC. And Ezra, you can appoint magistrates and, uh, and judges. You can set up your own civil justice system. This was what the king gave to Ezra in uh, chapter 7 from verse 12 to 26, recorded in a letter that we still have. And then Ezra had favor from the king, we know that, and Ezra took courage and he started his mission to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 7 verse 27, I, Ezra, took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And at one time, Ezra thought that he was all alone. Where am I going to find people to help me to rebuild the worship and the, uh, the worshippers? But eventually he did. And he found 38 Levites and he found 220 temple servants. And these were the people that went together with him to re-establish worship. Ezra chapter 8, verse 18. And then, Ezra was afraid to ask more from the king, and instead he decided on uh, fasting and praying. Let me read to you Ezra chapter 8, verse 22. For I, Ezra, was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of the Lord of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. He wasn't going to ask the king for soldiers to protect because who's going to protect him? God. The hand of God was going to protect him. So I also asked myself, why was Artaxerxes so good to, to Ezra and the Jews? And uh, Pastor Chiming covered that uh, in, the, in the first sermon of this series. It's got to do with Persian politics, but you can easily detect King Artaxerxes' uh, self-interest. It was part of his own insurance policy. You read that in Ezra chapter 7, verse 23. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his son. So in case the God of Ezra's wrath is on me and on my sons, I'm going to give Ezra everything that he wants, his insurance policy, because this God of Ezra is powerful indeed. And then in verse 26 of chapter 7, it says, Whoever will not obey the law of your God, Ezra, and the law of me, the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So he equated his laws to the law of God. We are like sort of equal status. You don't obey your God, you don't obey me, same thing. You will be killed or banished or you'll have your goods confiscated. So, and he called himself king of kings. In his letter that he wrote to the governors, he called himself King of Kings. And he was like, I can give you this favor, Ezra, I can take it back from you. But I'm not sure how much King Artaxerxes listened to God and how much God moved him. Uh, that we'll find out when we get to heaven. But I think with hindsight of some 2,500 years, we can clearly see something. We can clearly see the hand of God in this whole story of Ezra that we are considering. The God who made all things, including this megalomaniac uh, Artaxerxes, made his agenda work to God's agenda. 
It's like Romans 8.28, right? He works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes we don't see that, but at least in Ezra, some 2,000 plus years later, we see that. The hand of God was so obvious in this story. But why Ezra? Could have, there must be many, many Jewish leaders God could have chosen. Why Ezra? I, I believe the answer is found in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of his God was on him. The king granted him favor because the hand of God was on Ezra. Why was the hand of God on Ezra? Because he was skilled in the law of Moses. That's the way I, I, I put the logic. And furthermore, in verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The hand of God was on Ezra because the word of God was in Ezra. And it wasn't so much that King Artaxerxes chose Ezra. It was God who chose Ezra. It was God's agenda eventually. And his agenda, rebuilt temple, rebuilt people. Rebuilt the house of worship and rebuilt the worshippers. And the worshippers who had lost sight of their eternal future and priorities. You know, how did the prophet Haggai put it in, in the last two Sundays we talked about? That these are the people with paneled houses, beautiful houses, but they had neglected the house of corporate worship. The temple was in ruins. An abandoned project of some 18 years. These are the people who work, who invested, but who harvested little. These are the people who wear trendy clothes, but feel no warmth. Who earn wages, but it leaked away like there were holes in their wallets. It sounded to me exactly like what Jesus said of one of the seven churches in Revelation. The church of Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. You know, just as Ezra saw much favor and success in his endeavors, because the hand of God was upon him, the people of Israel harvested little, had no warmth, had money leaked out of their wallets, also because the hand of God was on them. And it took the word of God and the prophet of God like, Isaiah, uh, uh, like, like Haggai to show them that they were wretched. You know that in many parts of the scripture, it is also said, written that the hand of God was against, against the people. The hand of God was heavy upon certain people. And every time that happens, it is because the people have become proud. Because they live in nice houses, they planted, they invested money, and there is only one outcome when you become proud. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And Ezra could easily have fallen into this trap of pride because he seemed to have had everything going his way. And he even had an earthly godfather, King Artaxerxes, who gave him everything he wanted. And all Ezra needed to do was heart think and things succeed. 心想事成. 
It's a phrase that we use uh, during Chinese New Year. You just have to think and you will get it. But what did Ezra do instead? Ezra chapter 8 from verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on those who seek Him and the power of His wrath against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and He listened to our entreaty. Indeed, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> and then what do we do? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It's so true, isn't it? Scripture. You know, last week, my ex-boss, or maybe it's my ex-ex-ex, not as in triple X, but previous, previous, previous boss, humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and he was at me. He wanted to meet me after 22 years. I haven't seen him for 22 years. And I, 22 years ago, I quit the job. So happy to throw my resignation letter in front of him when I just couldn't stand his ways. And I was full of confidence that I'd get another job easily, but it didn't happen because the hand of God was heavy upon me as I entered six months of joblessness because God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So 22 years later, my ex-ex-boss, now a Christian, extended the hand of fellowship to me because the hand of God was on him. And he WhatsApp to me, I am seeking your forgiveness for my bad behaviour in those days. Of course, we met. We met in uh, Star Vista, in that, uh, the kitchen, you know, food court. And I said, of course, I forgive. And, and, but whatever it was that bothered me so badly 22, 22 years ago, I now cannot recall what it was that created so much angst in me. And uh, I said, I will forgive you, of course. And then I also sought his forgiveness uh, for causing him grief because uh, when the executive vice president resigned, the, the president, uh, people were asking, so what do you do to him that he resigned so suddenly? So it did cause him some grief. And of course, he um, forgave me. And then he revealed to me that I had actually extended my hand to him in 2001, something that I had totally forgotten. And he said he remembered clearly what I wrote to him and, and, and that I... Uh, Okay, let me quote what he says in the WhatsApp. Thanks also for encouraging me with the words of Jeremiah when I fell from my secular pinnacle in 2001. In 2001, he was removed as a CEO and he was very high up, CEO of a listed company. And then I think now I recall maybe it was at that time that I wrote the message of uh, reconciliation and encouragement for him, quoting Jeremiah that uh, the Lord has plans for you for good to give you a hope and a, and, and a future. And, and can you imagine being removed as CEO? The hand of God was heavy upon him in 2001. But now he says, I admire your devotion to God 
And you remind me of the following verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. <coughs> we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then he concluded in that WhatsApp message, the peace of our Lord be with you. Amen. Wow, this last verse is so amazing, right? 22 years of estrangement. I didn't want to know him anymore. I'm not interested in knowing him anymore. 22 years later, we are reconciled as brothers in Christ. And the concluding statement is, the peace of our Lord be with you. And isn't it beautiful when the Word of God, when you practice what Jesus preached, and it's so simple, God is all-wise, his ways are perfect. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What God says, we obey. And it's going to be beautiful. And it's, it's as simple as this saying that I've come across, that what God says not to do, we dare not do. But what God says to do, we dare not not do. And what did God say for us to do? Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool or you idiot <coughs> will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Simple, right? Very, very simple. No need for expository preaching or exegesis of the word. You just read this. Matthew chapter 5 is so simple. My ex-ex-boss obeyed it. Okay, it took him 22 years. I obeyed it some six years after the incident. <clears throat> but I hope you guys here, you're not going to take 22 years or six years to obey this scripture that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5. Let's not take so long to seek or to give forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. Otherwise, the hand of God might be heavy upon you for six years or for 22 years or, or forever or, or for, for however long that we are not obeying what Jesus preached. Another time when the hand of God was heavy upon me was over a false testimony that I, I gave breaking one of the Ten Commandments, telling a lie. I lied to the military authorities about my not having asthma because I so wanted to be a pilot. And every time I fill in a form, they will ask you to declare, have you had tuberculosis or asthma or whatever? Everything was no, 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 no. And when the doctor or the officials asked me, uh, do you have asthma? I said, no. And the hand of God was heavy on me for about four years until I decided to come clean. You guys know the story, right? Because I keep telling you like an old man and like a broken record. So, is there some untruth in our lives? Is there some uncleanness in our lives? So, confront it. Confront it because you want to be holy as God is holy. And, and holiness isn't really complicated at all. Obedience to God isn't really complicated at all. But sometimes we, we make it so. And I've recently, I've heard all kinds of arguments about coming late to church. It's like, nah, nah, nah. 
what's wrong with coming to later? In, in certain cultures, you know, it's, it's like okay to stroll in and stroll out, but you just ask yourself, is it okay in Singapore culture? Uh, or even about homosexuality or, or premarital, premarital sex, there are all kinds of twists and turns of argument about these things. You know, it's kind of like um, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay, you may not know his name, but you know Sherlock Holmes. He wrote Sherlock Holmes. You may not know the Sherlock Holmes on the left, but I think many of us know the Sherlock Holmes on the right. right? Like Benedict Cumberpatch or something, and this other guy is whatever. The, okay, Captain America, not Captain America, the Iron Man or something. Anyway, <coughs> so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, writer of Sherlock Holmes, tells this story about simplicity. He said that one day, and, and, and it's a story, okay? Actually, it's fiction. But anyway, he tells it. And he says, one day he was in Paris uh, at a taxi stand looking for a taxi. And, um, and a taxi pulled up. And immediately, the taxi driver says, where can I take you, Mr. Doyle? And he was shocked, like, how do you know me? How would you know my name? So he asked, and he said, have you seen me before? Driver and the driver said, I've never seen you before, but today's newspaper had an article about you, sir, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, being on holiday in Marseille. Marseille is south of France. And this is the taxi stand for people who have travelled from Marseille to Paris. Furthermore, I see that uh, your skin colour, you are like a beetroot, okay? You are so red. Uh, that means you have been on vacation in the southern part of the country. And I see also an ink spot on your right index finger, which tells me that you are a writer. And that um, your clothing is English. And uh, therefore, I put all this together and I decided that you were Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Mr. Doyle was like, whoa! I write Sherlock Holmes, but you are the real Sherlock Holmes. And then the taxi driver says, uh, there's one more thing, sir. Your name is on your suitcase. <laughs> I mean, it's like God's word is not on the suitcase, but God's word is in the Bible. It's there. It's simple. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You know, whenever I preach a, a message of rebuke, and I don't that, do that so often, uh, try more to be like encouraging and nurturing, but if I preach a message of, of rebuke, I often get very good feedback, you know. Very good feedback. And people will say, oh, good job, pastor. Preach it, pastor. Uh, give them a good work, pastor. And that rebuke, it's so timely, Pastor. It's necessary for my neighbor next to me. I came across this recently in the wake of Billy Graham's death, and it's one of his sayings. And he said, It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, it is God's job to judge, it is my job to love. And some wisecrack added this The problem is, we want to do all three jobs. We like to convict people of their sin and we judge everybody and we are not loving. Because we simply cannot see our own faults or refuse to see our own faults. 
So let's come back to the story of Ezra. The hand of God was on him and everything was hunky-dory, right? He got everything he wanted. Does it sound like he was healthy and he was wealthy? And that this is health and wealth teaching? I discussed this with uh, someone over lunch uh, last week and he said something like that. Yes, the hand of God was on Ezra and all these good things happened to Ezra, full stop. It was a description of one phase of life in a man called Ezra. It is not a doctrine. It is a description of what happened. The hand of God on you doesn't mean that everything will go well for you in the earthly sense, that you will be healthy and wealthy and you will not have cancer and that your king or your boss or your business will give you so much that uh, you have no need. Uh, and you, all you need to do is go and fast and pray. You know, you dare not ask for anything more. Or, or even that if you fast and pray, that you will be rich and wealthy. Let me share with you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 onwards. It says this about the hand of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means after you become a Christian, after you have placed your faith in God, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And so the lesson is, it's much deeper. After enlightenment, after you place your faith in God, you may well continue with a hard struggle with sufferings, but be confident of this. Don't throw it away, even if you had to suffer. And while it may look like everything was hunky-dory with Astro, but that's only chapter 7 and 8. Next week, we will cover the other chapters. It wasn't easy for Ezra at all. If you read the following chapters, he was so... It was so hard for him. He was struggling and frustrating for him that he pulled out his hair and his beard. Okay? I've been a pastor now 18 years. I haven't had to pull out my hair and I also don't have a beard to pull. And, and so, Pastor Chiming next week will explain to you the doctrine of pulling out your hair. Yeah, I'll leave that to him. The key verse in Ezra for me is Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it. In fact, there's one key word only, do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The hand of God was on Ezra because the word of God was in Ezra. You know that many people like to study the word of God. You have no end of Bible seminars in Singapore, especially in precepts and BSF and all this. But not so many people do the word of God, and especially the simple parts of obedience and holiness, like confession, like forgiveness. And lesser still would people want to teach the Word of God. But all of us teach the Word of God because we are all on display before an unbelieving world who will not read the Word, but who will observe those who do or do not do the Word of God. They read not the word, but they read the worshipper. They see the works of those 
who study the Word, and like it or not, you are teaching the Word of God. So is the hand of God on you? To answer the question, we first need to answer this one. Is the Word of God in you? Elder Benny, uh, in the first service last week, talked about hiding the Word of God in our hearts. You know, I'm terrible at memorizing Scripture, so I'm going to exegete this away. That is more than rote memory. It is about saturating yourself with the Word of God and doing the Word of God when you, you will remember the Word of God way better when you obey the Word of God, when it has come true for you. That the hand of God might be on you because the Word of God is in you. Ezra set his heart to study the law, to do it, to teach it. There's another passage that is, is so helpful when it talks about the Word of God. Let me read to you. Psalm 119 from verse 98. It says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. It talks about saturating yourself with the Word of God. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I have understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. When you have the word of God in you, the hand of God will be on you and you will be truly wise. You understand more than people in the first service, the aged, more than people like me. And it's true. When the Word of God is in you, it says, I have more understanding than my teachers. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. That means I study the Word and I do the Word. You know, continuing on this <coughs> hand of God, what image do you think of when, when you hear or when you say, the hand of God. When I first started looking at these two chapters, the hand of God, so obvious, it comes out six times in the two chapters. I think of this picture. It's, like, it's painted on the Sistine Chapel in, in Rome. The hand of God touching the hand of Adam. Or what else do you think of? You think of something like, like this. Oh, the hand of God holding the whole world in, in His hands. And, but if you Google the hand of God, what do you get? You get this. Maradona in 1970, no, 1986 World Cup against England where he handballed and then he scored the goal and then he lied because the referee didn't see it and he lied. He said, I did not touch it with my hand. The hand of God is now associated with a lie. But when I think about the hand of God now, a bit more deeply, I think of this. This is my second son uh, holding my dad's hand. Okay? Like an, just like an obedient grandson holding the hand of the grandpa. And on the right side, I took a picture last year. I wanted to put the two together. Uh, <laughs> sort of like a uh, whatever, comparison or whatever. Um, yeah, I couldn't find a picture of myself holding my son's hand not because they are disobedient, that they shake my hand away, but because usually I'm holding the camera. Um, and 
all last week, I couldn't get this song out of my head, you know. Uh, I don't know, you know this song? Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters. You all probably will not know this song because I tried to ask Crystal to do this. Huh? What song? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's 1971, okay? I, I forgive you if you don't know this song because you're not born yet. 1971. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the sea. So when I think of the hand of God, his hand is a nail-pierced hand who calmed the seas, who stilled the waters, who tell us, I will never leave you nor forsake you through good times or bad times. I also think of Moses' last words in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are His everlasting arms. I think of the phrase, safe in the arms of Jesus. I use it so often in so many funerals over the last 18 years. But I didn't know until I googled this time last week, where does it come from? It comes from a hymn written by Fanny Crosby, who wrote many of the old-time hymns. And so, I'm 60, going to be 60 this year. I only learned this. We tend to think of like all these sweet and even sentimental images of hands carrying us, supporting us, the hand of God. It's not incorrect, but I believe it is incomplete because why don't we look at our own hands? Are these the hands of obedience? Are these the holy human hands placed in the hands of the one who stilled the waters, who calmed the sea, who was pierced for our transgression. What are these hands doing? Or are they just independent, proud hands like this? God wanted to restore a people. And how did He do that? Through Haggai, through Ezra. How? By restoring obedience to the Word. We study the Word, we do the Word, we teach the Word, or we demonstrate the Word. How? Like an obedient child holding the hands of a good Heavenly Father. Like a holy child of God placing His hands in the hands of one who stilled the waters, whose hands was pierced, whose hands touched lepers, whose hands healed, whose hands blessed. So would you take a look at your hands and would you place your hands in the hands of the one who stilled the waters. Study the Word, do the Word, obey the Word. Teach, show the world the Word that is in you. Lift out. So have you lied like I had many, many years ago? Have you given false testimony? Have you honoured your father and mother? Have you committed adultery or fornication? Make it right. Do you need to seek forgiveness? Do you need to give forgiveness? The Word says it. Do it. Make it right. Repent. Put it right. It's simple, but it's not easy. And that's why we need God's helping hand. As well as the helping hand of the family of God who can walk with us through the path of obedience. And like us, I'd like us to pray now, to pray in response as uh, get the musicians to come and help us with the closing song. And I really hope that God has touched your heart with respect to something concerning holiness. 
with respect to, to, to lying, perhaps, that there's some lie that you need to come clean, to seeking or granting of forgiveness, to the breaking of any of the commandments. And I like as a prophetic apostrophe in apostrophe act, that you might place your hand in the hand of someone, okay? God is invisible. We can lift up our hands and place it with Him or we can do it in proxy with another human being. And I know what it's like when we, the preacher says, oh, would you hold hands and pray? <laughs> no, we don't, we don't like that. Especially, especially as a guy, we recoil in, in like, oh, I must hold hands and, and pray. So I'm not going to ask you to do that, okay? Um, but I visit the sick often and I notice this, that dying men have no such inhibitions. Dying men have put away their pride. And, and last week, I, I had time with a man who wasn't so much given 18 months, but given his illness, the median survival, that means half will die of your illness before 18 months and half will die after 18 months. Okay, that's all he got statistically and he was putting his affairs in, in order. And I noticed that dying men have no such inhibitions or we don't have this pride anymore. On the whole hand, oh, really whole hands. Eh? And whenever I offer to pray for them, they will grab my hand. They will grab my hand. So I like to issue this altar call. Would you just grab the hand of someone and pray together? But for the guys, I have one concession. Uh, that if you don't like the whole hands like that, you know, let's do this. And I found out that it's called a bro handshake. Okay, you got the muscles, then fold up. Nah. Fold up your sleeve, but don't have the muscles fold down like me, you know. But it's like, do a bro handshake and let's pray together, okay? We are brothers in Christ. Let's journey this together. Let's find strength, like Ezra did, to study His Word, especially to do His will, and then to teach His ways. And let's also let not pray in, in general, but if the Lord has impressed upon your mind something that you need to put right. It's simple, but it's difficult, but we can do it by placing our hands in the hands of someone. We journey together in the hands of God. So let's rededicate ourselves to not just study His Word, but especially to do His will. I'm going to do it, Lord. I obey you no matter what. I trust that you are wise and your ways are perfect. Let's rise as we sing this closing song together. And as we do that, altar is open. If you wish to be prayed for, to be prayed with, then just come. And if you're a guy, we'll do that bro hand-holding together and then we'll pray. That we will be true to God's Word. Indeed, we will show God's ways through our lives. Let's sing.
is open if you wish to make a response and have someone pray with you you can do that but let me just close in prayer now and just pray that the word of God in us will constantly prompt us and set us apart set us apart is the literal translation of holiness that's what we are set apart children of God so Father God, I thank you for your simple word but which is difficult to obey. And so we need you. And I now place my hands in the loving hands of Almighty God and the hands of the one who still the waters, who calm the raging seas and that you will lead me to holiness if there should be some uncleanness some unholiness God help me deal with it help me to obey your word to do it no matter the consequences because we know the eternal consequence of an obedient child of God that it will be good because you work all things together for good to those who love you who are called according to your purpose who purpose to be holy and that's what we are Lord we want to be that we place our hands in the hands of a good, good Father knowing that your ways are wise your ways are perfect so help us in our journey through life there will be seasons where it is hunky-dory, but there will always also be seasons where it's difficult. And Lord, especially for anyone here who is going through a difficult time now, I pray that your hand will be upon them. The good hand of the Lord God Almighty will be upon them. And that you will lift them, you will support, you will nurture you will guide us through that we will end up being overcomers of difficult times Lord may your hand be gracious to us may the love of God reside in our hearts may the prompting of the Holy Spirit lead us on to paths that are righteous for your namesake Pray your blessing be upon each one here this afternoon. In the name of our Lord Jesus, Amen.